Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. I'm your host, Steve Kramer of Coach's Edge and coachesedge.coach. Thanks for jumping in today. A little bit different episode. As we talk with Curtis Pickering, he's been an NBA scout. He's worked for about eight different NBA teams. He's coached around the world, like places uh, Venezuela, Kuwait, Dubai. He's been a college basketball coach in a couple different states. And talk about a small world. He's from Midland, Michigan, about an hour from where I grew up. He's lived in California for a long time. And now he lives about a half hour away from me in South Carolina. And we randomly connected. Pretty pretty cool, uh, the basketball community, the basketball world. And in this episode, we take a little more of a lighthearted approach. We got him on two episodes. One, he's talking about the lessons learned from his time working in the NBA that can be applied to coaches, especially at the high school level. And in this episode, we're talking about just some of his unique experiences coaching basketball around the world. You know, if you've been traveling the world as a player or as a coach, some strange things happen, let's be honest. And so in this episode, he talks about some of those unique experiences, and it gives me a chance to also talk about some of my unique experiences. He also randomly owned a semi-pro basketball team in the U.S. called the IBL. Now, I played semi-pro basketball in the States for parts of two different seasons in the IBL in preparation for my heading overseas, playing professionally, kept me in shape and stuff like that. So we share a little connection there. And I uh, talked on air and off air about some of the unique experiences of what semi-pro basketball is. And if you're curious about what semi-pro basketball is like, just watch the movie Semi-Pro with Will Ferrell. That'll also give you a good idea. So thank you to Coach Pickering for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge podcast. We hope that you guys enjoy a little more of a lighthearted episode on this one, and then we'll have him back on an additional episode digging into some of the lessons learned at the NBA level. Let's get to the show. I'd like to give a warm Coach's Edge welcome to Kurt Pickering. And man, we're digging into some lifelong basketball experiences. I know this is going to be a, a lot of fun. Coach, you have been in Australia, Canada, Kuwait, Dubai, Venezuela, Philippines. We're probably leaving some countries out there as well. You, you've have Canada. experienced Canada and the, you've been to IBL. Yeah. Obviously, we've, we've talked about all your NBA experiences as well. And so I really want to hear, I love hearing other people talk about their experiences with basketball, where it's taken them, and really learn them, especially when it's been internationally, because I have a handful of really good memories and funny stories as well. So I don't know where you want to start. Why don't you, why don't you just introduce yourself a little bit to our, our listeners, and then we'll just get going with it. Well, grew up in Michigan, and I uh, let's just say I was on the basketball team at Spring Harbor University and tore my ACL my senior year. I was, mm. I was really excited about getting quality playing time my senior year, and then that was devastating, mm. but I always knew I wanted to coach. So uh, my college assistant coach, he became head coach at Marion College in Indiana, and so... I went with him and taught at a junior high school and was an assistant coach there at Marion College. So that got my feet wet, and then I uh, knew I needed to get my master's degree. So I met an amazing man 
and within two days, he gave me uh, a free place to live, meals, <laughs> uh, my master's degree, Coach Johnny Howerton at Texas Wesleyan University, and uh, tragedy hit the second year, and I became head coach at 26. And then uh, I later coached at uh, John Brown University in Arkansas, and then um, I visited, and next thing I know, I'm working and coaching in the NBA Summer League when it was at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. The league, of course, is now in Las Vegas, but Larry Krager became a very close friend of mine. He had been the Laker assistant coach, and he owned the Summer Pro League. So that's when I met so many NBA people, and that that um, kind of elevated me to Europe and then into the NBA. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's about, you know, so many times it's about who who you know not what you know mm-hmm. and uh that that ball has taken you around the world literally um so tell us a little bit about that like is there is there a memory that sticks out in your mind or something that was just so unique that you're like man i i try to share this with as many people as i can maybe i'll just uh just kind of hot point or bullet point things but you know my experience in vienna was amazing just to experience the culture and get on the trains and we'd play games in different countries. That was awesome. And, and this is back in the mid eighties be, before uh, the walls came tumbling down. So Budapest and Bratislava, uh, different countries, uh, uh, Yugoslavia at the time. I remember we had a, 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 a car uh, ran into our team bus. We were getting to play Drazen Petrovic, Sabona uh, team and in, in Zagreb. And, uh, man, we sat there for about two hours, and we were – our bus driver was, you know, driving properly, and they were telling us we were all going to go to jail. But fortunately, our general manager got a hold of the, of the team, and they came to our rescue. So um, – but it was really interesting living over there and experiencing all these different cultures. The game was exciting over there, you know, uh, the way it was played with the three-point line. And um, so just that experience, going to Ireland, playing in the European Cup there, I, I, it was just, you know, I was getting paid to do this. It mm-hmm. was phenomenal, you know. And then later on, I go to Kuwait. A year after the Persian Gulf War, I've got a lot of pictures of the building still devastated. And there, the players were all very wealthy. They'd drive up in their Mercedes. And, and uh, they, they liked the game. You know, they didn't really love it, you know, as far as putting time into it. You know, practice. Uh, they had a real Sorry. light for the game. And uh, we traveled a lot there. And we... Spent a couple months in the Philippines just training. I mean, money was no, no problem. So we, we played a lot of teams in, there in Manila. In fact, I'll never forget the last game. Uh, there, you know, there had been some issues back in Kuwait in which many of the uh, expatriates, as they call them, women that were, you know, housemaids and and such, they. Uh, 
they felt under under um, uh, pressure with with their jobs there, things that you know they were forced to do. So they went to the Philippine embassy. Well, there was over two hundred of them, and they couldn't leave that embassy. Mm -hmm. That made front page news in Manila on that Saturday, our last game, and. We never made it through the first half. I mean, there were so many fights breaking out because they saw our team as representing Kuwait. Mm. I, my guys were all good people, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they they really were, in a way, were passive. You talk about trying These were to, the players fighting or like how did they Yeah, I mean, there yeah. was just fights breaking out. And, and, a, and you know, I love the Filipino, Filipino people, so I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting anything there, but this game was – Fights kept breaking out, mm -hmm. and that had made front page news. Their coach, thank God for him, he was uh, he was very protective of us and of the game, trying to trying to keep his guys calm down. Mm -hmm. But um, <clears throat> we never made it through the first half. We had yeah. to load up and head back to the hotel. <laughs> I mean, it, so you know, to experience, uh, uh, you know. The game of basketball, we, you always want to leave politics out of it. You know, it's it's about bringing bringing different cultures together. You know, and a, create a, a a brotherly love, quite frankly. But sometimes things, you know, are are what they are. And uh, but I, you know, there's no great. Uh, I will tell you, there's no greater uh, passion for the game of basketball than the Philippines. It mm. doesn't get any mm. more passionate. Mm. They, they, they absolutely love Just the game. Just all day, every day, somebody's absolutely. always dribbling a ball. And absolutely. And you see awesome. these, you know, you see these, these basketball goals out there, no nets, mm -hmm. and, and they're all playing. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of poverty there in Manila, but they love the game. Love the game. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, like Yao Ming brought to his country and and to the NBA and he's a wonderful man. I've spent time with him. Um, I hope there's a day the Philippines, you know, they have a player that mm -hmm. that really uh, is you know comes to the NBA and and makes an impact mm -hmm. because um, th then there will be more recognition for that country's yeah. involved with the game. It, That'd it's be a, great it's for amazing there. Yeah, it's easily number one uh, the, of of all the places I've traveled and spent time. There's no greater love of the game than there. That's pretty cool. Is there, was there a specific game? You mentioned, okay, you had fights breaking out in one. That's pretty unusual. Um, you had you know, different locations. You talk about the love for, for the game with the Filipino people. Um, you know, I think back to one unique memory. I had the chance to play in Ritzburg, which was the team that Dirk Nowitzki played for uh -huh. before he went to the NBA. Yeah. And so... To be able to just play in the same arena where I was like, man, Dirk Nowitzki, like this is where he grew up playing. And I'll never forget we're playing and the fire code was much different than it is if you were over here. Especially when, I mean, yeah, there's probably, I don't know, maybe 3,000 seats in, in that arena. So it's not like... 10 or 20,000 like an NBA arena that has fireworks, but they had fireworks in there, right? And so we're doing the lineups, lights are off, there's fireworks and, and stuff going off. I'm like, man, this is pretty cool. Well, they turn the lights on into the arena and it's just smoke. 
right? Yeah. It's just it's smoke. And uh, at the same time, they gave every fan that came in uh, sparklers. And so the, the lights are off. They got fireworks going off out on the court. You look into the stands and everything's pitch black except for everybody's sparklers. So it looks like, you know, a million stars in the sky. Yeah. And uh, I was like, man, this is an amazing environment. Lineups are, are done. We're getting ready for tip off. We're standing out on the court and you're almost like coughing. And you, you can just kind of look up like 15 feet above your head. And there's just like this cloud because there's nowhere for all the fireworks and, and sparkler smoke to go and it, that was like the first quarter or so of the game was just playing in like smog and I was like man this is just a unique experience that I'm going to gonna remember it and cherish was there things like that that happened during your experience where you're like that this just wouldn't happen in the states yeah well and you know any story I tell it's not a uh, reflection of that country being crazy and out of control, sure. you know, people people bring their passion to the yeah. game, you know? Yeah, and 100%. Pe- pe- people love entertainment. They work hard to earn their money, so they want that release. They're there for in- entertainment. But in Venezuela, uh, before I got there, because I replaced a friend of mine, Rory White, who played in the NBA, and uh, I got there in time for regular season games and then playoffs but when Rory was there a big fight had broken out between another team there in Venezuela and uh, uh, players were suspended for for several weeks while both teams had not played since we had to go to their place Tadermas I think was the name of the the team uh, Guterres and so we go there and when we get out of the bus there are national guards with guns and they're they surround our bus to protect us and then they've i mean there was there was probably 80 soldiers and then they and then they they were lined up on both sides so we could walk between them into the gym when we got in the gym then they quickly surrounded the the court for the entire game because uh it's notorious there, bottles being thrown yeah. on the court. Mm-hmm. And that that had happened in that previous two games. So, um, you know, once the, the, the whistle blows, the ball goes up, you're not thinking about those soldiers being there. Um, you're just playing the game. And as a coach, I was focused on it. But when the game was over, they won. I hate to think if we'd have won, <laughs> what could have happened. But the fans, you know, they, they kept, their, kept their calmness. And but those soldiers were there again when yeah. we when we left. That was just kind of odd. I mean, you don't you don't see that many, and they completely surrounded the court. Wow, that's that's something. Talk talk a little bit about the language barrier. You're going around all these different places in the world. I know, you know I I played for one season in Slovakia when my coach didn't speak English, and a handful of the players on my team didn't speak English, and this was two thousand eight, nine, so a little over 10 years ago. And, uh, I, you know, I, I specifically remember talking to the coach as we were game planning to play Pezenok, who had probably the best point guard in the league, and I was supposed to guard him. And we were, they ran a lot of ball screens. And so we're going over their plays in practice, and I say, Coach, you want me to fight over the ball screen or do you want me to, to go underneath? And he looks at me and he just says, 
Good, 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 good. <laughs> and I said, oh, we are in big trouble yeah. uh, because he has no idea what, what I'm saying. And yeah. all season it was, uh, hey, we're at the timeout. And I'm drinking my, you know, whatever version of Gatorade it was over there. Coach is talking and he's on the board and I'm just hanging out. And then we walk out on the court and I look over to one of my teammates and I just say, hey, so what did he say? And <laughs> my teammate would say something like, we got to play better defense. We got to rebound the ball more. And I know he said like five different things yeah. than that. Yeah. Um, so it was just a, a unique experience where, hey, we're just doing the best to to try to make this work, help each other out. And you've been in even more countries than that. So talk about that type of challenge. Well, I, I owned and coached a team, a minor league team, Santa Barbara Breakers. We went to China 12 times, mm-hmm. went to Europe and Mexico also. But in China... We always had a translator, but they they weren't always um, real effective in in like you just explained in your your uh, story. You, you knew there was that they were talking so much, and then I'd I'd get a response of, Sound bite, of yeah. one to two sentences. Mm-hmm. So I, you just had to just roll with it, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, you know, I loved going to China, and you know. The, we were always in cities a million or more, and China has 99 cities with a population of more than a million. USA has nine, just to give you an idea there. But amazingly, the smile, you know, I'm 6'4", used to have blonde hair, blue eyes, and you know, you go over there and I look much different, but it's amazing what a smile will do. And then some of the young, people there could speak English and it was fun to talk to them. Mm-hmm. Most adults did not speak any English at all. So um, a smile was just kind of an icebreaker of letting them know, hey, I'm I'm happy to be here in your country. Basketball wise, wow, it uh, at, at one time we had three translators and that helped, although they all would talk at the same time. So, you know, but <laughs> least I was able to get more information that they that they uh, wanted to to convey to me so I want to ask you this with what you know in some of your experiences what the biggest adjustment was because yeah I work with a handful of players who have the chance to play overseas or speak with ones who they want to play basketball overseas and I'll say listen basketball is basketball there's going to be some differences but you're gonna you're gonna pick up on that pretty quick the biggest adjustment is the lifestyle. And as we talked about with the language already, different types of adjustments you're going to have to make with the culture. And yeah, there's just different things that you know we may take for granted, just like uh, if you grew up in Slovakia or Poland, there's things you might take for granted over there compared to if you, if you moved to a different part of the world. I remember um, we had a laundry, a washing machine in my apartment in Bratislava, but every time that you did the laundry, you had to take the pipe where the water came out and you had to put it in the toilet so that the water could drain. So, you know, the water went in the washing machine, but to come out, you had to put it somewhere. Otherwise, this pipe was just going to spill it all over the floor, right? And so I'm like, okay, I just got to remember to do this. Well, I get home from Christmas break. I come back. And I'm in the I'm in the apartment. I'm doing my first load of laundry after practice, and I get a phone call from the general manager on the team, and uh, 
he's like, Steve, how you doing? I'm like, hey, you know, it's all, I'm good. You know, just getting, you know, situated after Christmas break. And uh, so he says, we just got a call from the people who live downstairs below your apartment. And they said that there's water leaking through their ceiling. <laughs> he's like, do you know anything about this? Is there, and sure enough, I was like, oh man, I, I sprinted, I ran over to the washing machine, sure enough. I didn't take the tube and put it in, in the toilet and there was water all over the floor. I was like, oh no, I don't know what you're talking about, gotta go. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, just stuff like that from a culture standpoint that were big adjustments. What were some of those things that come to you mind, your mind? Uh, well, one thing stands out in China was I, I, I went up to Canada and did tryouts in uh, Montreal and Toronto and put a really nice team together, really quality players. We went to China for 26 days. And this is very common. The, the, it's like the Autobahn over there. Everybody drives crazy. There's no laws uh, of the road. And our bus driver was just speeding way too much and our players were complaining and he didn't speak any English so I mean they were even cussing him out you know but he didn't know and sure enough he we're going we're going probably 50 miles an hour and he just swings into the left lane because he thinks he can speed up you know move move quicker and there was the traffic had completely stopped and we slammed it going probably 40 miles an hour, we slammed into a big truck and the front windshield, this is a huge bus, those big tour buses, that thing completely, it didn't break up in pieces, it, it just completely started to come in at us and then it, and then it fell out. It's probably, it's probably engineered that way. And, uh, but we, my assistant coach and a couple of players had been sleeping, so they actually got hurt from it and I, it it was really bad because the players said they were going to refuse to play the next game mm. they were so upset cuz they yeah. had been telling the sponsors about it and and I had too but it, it falls on deaf ears that's how they drive over there yeah that's just the way they they drive yeah yeah and, and so uh we we ended up we were playing against Brazil and you know our our Chinese sponsor there. He he was he'd been in the military. He 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 uh, was a very good businessman, very wealthy. He always came up with something. So he ended up saying we're going to have a corporate game, and and so the next city we were going to it was several big companies that were sponsoring the cost, and so. Uh, Brazil agreed we would just play a friendly game, and it was just all the corporate employees, which was still a lot of a lot of people. But because we usually would play between uh, ten to fifteen thousand fans, wow. nice. so there was only about, but there were still probably three to four thousand fans for this corporate game. So six of my players were willing to play, and it was it was a friendly game, and they just you know it was entertaining, a lot of dunks, a lot of it was like an NBA All Star game, no mm. defense, mm. you know, and uh, so we got through that, and he actually paid the players more, mm -hmm. and uh, we got through the rest of the schedule. But 
it it was I'll tell you I, you know your life is on the line you, yeah when you're when you're in those big buses and they're driving man that, crazy uh, you, no you're you're right and having been in Germany for a variety of years and being on the autobahn uh, which for the most part I felt really safe but there were times where if you're in the passing lane you have to be passing nobody just drives in the <laughs> left lane because you might be going 90 but there might be a car coming up on you that you can't even see that's going 160 180 it's miles true. an hour and they're out yep. and you, you better get over quick um so they they learn how to drive over there and, and you also reminded me of we went to mexico with our basketball team and played um kind of uh one of the state national teams down there during the summer and the bus rides around the mountains in Chiapas as uh, I mean there'd be there'd be crosses around of all the the accidents and and you know we're in the bus and the guy's just flying around these corners and I'm like dude this is like one and a half lanes maybe if there's another car coming like one of us is going off this mountain or we're gonna have to slam on the brakes quick that was that was quite scary uh, but another thing I remember from our Mexico trip was the style of play. And I remember playing uh, against these Mexican players who were, I mean, we were in college at the time. So most of the players on the team were pros. So they were a little bit older uh, than us. But I'll never forget how physical the game was. I mean, th these guys were so strong. And uh, the hand checking and the bumping that they were allowed to do wasn't something I was used to at the college level. Was there something like that that stuck out to you in these different countries that you've coached in that you felt like, man, that place has a really unique style of play? Uh, I'd have to say Venezuela. And I think of a story, um, um, blanking on his name right now, he's a Laker assistant coach, Mike. You Shaq called him the sniper. I can't think of his last name right now. Probably come to me. But uh, we were down there, and he lit up for like 32 points in the first half. That's unusual. That's really unusual. But he could just really shoot the three. But the other team had a player that they called him the assassin. And uh, just like Jack Tatum of the Oakland Raiders. And first play the second half, it's like they, Penberthy. It's like they let Mike Penberthy get a breakaway layup. And the assassin absolutely body slamming took him out. Mm -hmm. And he, he couldn't play. And, wow. and that 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 was common. And and the assassin did not get kicked out of the game. Mm. He did not get kicked out of the game. But I'll tell you the other you know, we've talked about all these these tough situations that occur, but on a lighter note, I will say in Venezuela, my team, I could never get them to listen to me or look at me in the huddle, in the timeouts, when it was a TV game, because for the TV games down there in Venezuela, the cheerleaders, I don't know if they were sponsored by Victoria's Secret, <laughs> but it was so risque. The players, you know, they're grown grown boys, <laughs> grown men, and uh, these cheerleaders, man, they... It was X-rated. I couldn't keep their attention, you know, and I'm trying to draw up a play, talk about what we need to do, and they're they're stargazing and and the music's loud too and the but it, the TV cameras are right on that and good luck trying to uh you know coach during the timeouts. 
<laughs> so you you bring back another memory. Maybe this is where we'll kind of start rounding out the podcast as we talk about the IBL back in the, the U.S. Because um, you've coached and owned an IBL team. And I had the chance to play for portions of two different seasons in the IBL for the Holland Blast, which is stands for the International Basketball League. And <clears throat> we played a team in Battle Creek. Mm-hmm. And we're playing at Battle Creek. And if you've you know had the chance to see the movie Semi-Pro with Will Ferrell, sure. I recommend it because there is a lot of uh, parallels to that movie and some of my experiences playing in the in the IBL. And you mentioned the cheerleaders. We're playing in, in Battle Creek, and it was like the mini skirts, the go-go boots, and uh, I, I just I'll just never forget of all the places that we've traveled. And you go to that one game, you're like, wait, these are the actual cheerleaders? Like where? <laughs> <laughs> what what's going what's going on here uh so I'll, I'll never forget that and that's also where in the IBL is where we played against a guy named Sun Ming Ming oh yeah who seven, was nine. yeah seven, seven, eight, seven, seven nine seven yeah. nine and, and uh yeah. playing against him he was at that time at least he was the tallest player pro player in the world and uh being able to play against him was unbelievable he he dunked on you know he's seven nine our center's six nine he posts up and you can't even see our center anymore he just disappeared uh and he and he dunked on us where you know he's standing on the ground holding the oh, yeah. uh, at the same time and um so just some really unique experiences playing in the international basketball league uh, i could go on and on with with other ones uh, as well but anything that stands out to you from your experience owning and coaching a, a pro team yeah well I, i'm not trying to make my story bigger than yours no but, go for it yeah go for but, it. This but is it's a fun story when i was coaching there in um uh, in in dubai i saw in, in the newspaper the the the, the uh what was it called the uh, Emirate Times, I guess it was in English, picture of a tall guy, and you know everything was in centimeters over there. So I wasn't really sure how tall he was, but he he was the uh, doorman for this hotel, and he did look so huge. So I drove over to that hotel, and sure enough, there he was. He didn't speak any English. And uh, I was able to talk to somebody else working there at the hotel. And they said, oh, he's from Somalia. And and so I said, could you ask him, does he know anybody that speaks English, you know, a relative or someone, and if I could get their phone number. So make a long story short, he, his uncle lived there. That's why he was living there in, in Dubai. And... I got the phone number. I talked to his uncle. We arranged it. We I even got a gym set up, um, and so he he showed up, and I I don't even recall his name, but he showed up in his in his white gown and sandals that were made. They were just slabs of leather with, like, um, you know, string that 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 tied over across his feet to keep them on. And the first thing I did was measure him. He was seven foot eight and three quarters. Wow. And um, so I just had a basketball, and I, through his uncle, I told him what I wanted to do. He lasted about eight minutes, and he just said, he's telling his uncle, I'm so tired. And he didn't have real mobility, but he too could dunk without even lifting his heels mm. off, off the floor. But he wanted to go outside. We'd go outside, and then I realized he needed to smoke a cigarette. Yeah, yeah. 
And his uncle started telling me the story. He says, do you know why he's not able to move? He would like to run for you, coach. He'd like to run up and down the floor, but he can't. And I said, why, why is that? And he said, and I, I lived in Santa Barbara, California for 32 years uh, until moving here. He said, well, he's from Santa Barbara, Somalia, and he fought in the war there. He still has a bullet in his leg. And, <laughs> and so then we go back in the gym and I asked the, the player if, if he'd like to, you know, work on some moves again. And he just, he kind of shook his head, no, he was tired. And, uh, but he lifted up his gown for me and showed me. And yeah, he, he definitely had a bullet still in wow. his leg that needed to be removed. Wow. And so uh, I took pictures and I even contacted Bill Berka with the Lakers. He said, send me a video. And I told my one buddy back in Dallas, who, who was a college recruiter, and next thing you know, Central Michigan University's contacting me, true story, and uh, a couple other colleges. But I said, the guy doesn't speak any English. Mm -hmm. And are you willing to uh, get that bullet removed for him before he does anything? And... Uh, I had to just let that one go, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, there was too much. There would have been way too much maintenance to invest in seeing if that kid could play ball. He wow. was young. He was like twenty-one. Wow, what a story! Jeez, um, O'Pete had a bullet in his in his yeah. leg. Uh, talk yeah. about a big target um, if he was, you know, fighting. Um, dang. Um, so as we as we round out the the podcast, you had a chance to not only coach a team but own a team with the IBL. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, how unique of an experience that was in some of the semi-pro or minor leagues of pro sports in the U.S. I love the minor leagues because you, you come in contact with players who have been very successful at the college level. Of course, their dream is to play in the NBA, but why are they here? Mm -hmm. It's because they've, they've either been there and come back, you know, come down and, get, and got a recharge and try to get back up to the NBA or it's, you know, it's part of their, their dream, uh, climbing the ladder to get there. So I like, I have really enjoyed working with those players and you get all walks of life. You get guys that are still blaming somebody mm -hmm. why they're not in the NBA. You have guys that have deficiencies in their skill set. You've got, there, there's, there's a variation of reasons why they're not in the NBA. So mm -hmm. I really like trying to help those guys get back to the next level. Toby Bailey being one, and he got uh, he'd been with Detroit and Phoenix, but uh, he got trouts with Golden State and the Spurs. Didn't quite make it, but then he went to Spain and made some big dollars. And he'd been out of basketball. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's one example. Fred Vincent, who played in the NBA, played with us. And and um, he was my my assistant coach. And when we finished up the season, he got a job with the Clippers. Now he's the shooting coach for New Orleans and really helped turn uh, Lorenzo Ball's mm -hmm. game around shooting-wise. Yeah. That, that, he he's the real reason for that. So Samaki Walker played with us, and um, he was going through some difficult times uh, personally. I think that helped stabilize him. So the minor leagues to me is kind of a 
a, a stopgap where, you know, it, it gives them a chance to keep playing, staying in mm-hmm. shape, get that exposure, the, you know, that you need video, mm-hmm. and um, try to figure out, you know, what they need to do to get back to whether it's the NBA or good money overseas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good memories from playing there, and, and that was my reason for, for playing, and it was – it's the off season. I'm home from my actual season playing overseas. What a better way to make a few bucks. Not much, but make a few bucks to do something I would do anyway because I got to get ready for the next season. Right. And so you're getting the chance to play against guys that, you know, at the very least, they were really good college players that are able to still play. And many of them were like myself who were playing internationally. And you're talking about some guys that were, you know, had played in the NBA or, or were going back up to it. I remember – um, playing in Los Angeles, and, and we had a chance to play against uh, Lamont Murray, who had played in the NBA for a long time, played for the Clippers, and uh, boy, did he light us up. Boy, did he light me up <laughs> when, when uh, we got switched out and I had to had to guard him. And it's just a, a good reminder of like the NBA level, obviously, but even at all of these other levels, how good these guys are. Yeah. They can play. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there anything that you want to leave uh, our, our coaches with? I'll, I'll leave you the last word, whether that's a, a tip, a good memory, a unique experience that you had as we finish out this podcast. I know we could talk for hours. This has been a lot of fun. I, I would just say, you know, that uh, if you have that passion for the game, man, take it. Take it as far as you can, you know, but have balance in your life. Don't don't become obsessed with it because uh, there's the business side to it and there's also, you know, if you've got family, you know, make that a higher priority. Basketball is, you know, it's a wonderful game, but don't let it become bigger than what it is. So my first statement was take it as far as you can. That means, you know, to, to uh, give it your best. Mm-hmm. But make sure you still have a balance in life because, um, you know, don't sell your soul to the game that it uh, it's going to cost you relationships mm-hmm. or um, making bad decisions business-wise. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful game. I, I have a T-shirt I had made up. It says, thank you, uh, Dr. Naismith. has a picture of him with the peach basket and, and the ball and the year that he founded it, you know, from, I read all, I've got like four of his books Mm -hmm. and I love, you know, everything I've learned about him. He was a wonderful man and from Canada. And um, so I always make sure I, whenever I speak internationally, I don't want to talk about me and my career or my team. I want to talk about Dr. James Naismith because Mm -hmm. he's the reason we all have this wonderful game, mm-hmm. and it's provided a lot of, a lot of um, things for us. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And some great things for us to keep in mind as we finish out this pod, podcast. So, Kurt, thank you for for taking the time, um, and to our coaches that are listening, we hope that you found hey some fun in this episode. I know a lot of our podcast episodes are much more teaching based, but. I had to take the opportunity to talk with Kurt because he has just such a wealth of knowledge and experience, uh, and I'm glad we were able to make this make this happen. So thanks for listening to Coach's Edge, and as always, get after today. Recording stopped. What were the times on these two segments? 
That was 30, that was 30 37. 37. Yeah.